Yo, everybody, my name is Sal Abatello, Crush Groove and Body Moving, the original disco fever in the boogie down Bronx. You are now listening to Growing Up Italian in the Place. Catch it. Growing up Italian. Growing up Italian. Growing up Italian podcast. Growing up Italian. 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 Growing up Italian podcast. Growing up Italian. Growing up Italian. Growing up Italian podcast. Growing up Italian. Woo! All right. Got the lint off. All right, we got Bronx in the building today. Let's go. Fucking A. How's it going? Who's from the Bronx? Else? <laughs> the, guy, the guy in the hot seat. <laughs> you, you and Mickey. Shit. I'm going to get arrested again. <laughs> again. By the way, we're here today because a mutual friend of ours said we're more alike than we know. And then you show up with a chain with your company's name on it. <laughs> as I have a chain. My kids bought it for, uh, for my birthday. Awesome. I would have never bought this shit. But this gets a lot of, uh, a lot of clout. A lot of clout? Like a lot of cl- like people like oh, oh shit, even Fat Joe was like oh damn that shit is cool. <laughs> you like, shit is like this, yeah. Do you like that when people like look at your chain? It's cool. I mean, be from the Bronx would be like a defense. You know what it is? Huh? It's they're not looking at the chain; they're looking at the word, the fever. Yeah. And then they're like oh the fever, oh, that's pretty cool. What? Well, who ever knows about the fever? I mean, you can't wear this logo anywhere. I mean, everybody says it no matter where you go. Other countries and everywhere. It's just known all around the world. It's it's almost 50 years old, that logo, from 76. For those that don't and know, I'm what still, is the fever? Huh? What is the fever? For what, those that don't know. What is... Are we live? Right? Yeah, yeah, we're live. Oh, we're <laughs> Everybody we, says We're that. right into it. Oh, right shit. into it, yeah. Uh, well, the fever is a, a conglomerate of things going way back into the 70s, where I uh, had this club. My dad had this club called the Disco Fever. Oh, so disco was, fever. Yeah, okay. right. So that was the name in front of it because at that time, disco was slamming. It was the new music after Motown. Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes and the, the, you know, the Temptations were at Motown and then it became uh, disco, which took off like crazy. So we opened up a club on 167 in Jerome in the South Bronx and um, well, my mother came up with the name Disco Fever, which, thank God, because that was the hook because then we put catch it at after it which gave it a, a nice slogan mm-hmm. which was uh really good for advertising for clubs and stuff and mm-hmm. then for parties <clears throat> and then eventually uh we turned in it when i when i came across hip-hop in 78 uh in the disco fever when i used to get off work from the golden hour uh, up in the bronx that's where i worked as a bartender um on pelham parkway and and white plains road which was uh my mafioso place where I, I grew up over there. <clears throat> and what does that after, mean, mafioso place? Uh, There's a couple of guys there? A couple few. Of, how you doing? <laughs> there, was a, there was a few crooked noses in the place. <laughs> a, couple, a couple of curved noses? A real life well, Bronx ba- there. Back in the Bronx, back in those, uh, I'm jumping all around the place. Back in the Bronx in those days, um, all the clubs had bands and it was predominantly Italians. Well, you know, all the clubs. Uh, and, uh, there was a lot, like like I said, Chaz Palmolari had a band called Razzma Chaz. Joe Pesci had a band. Uh, uh, Vincent, uh, the god, one with the white hair and the Godfather. Okay. He had a band. He was the drummer. Uh, Pesci played the guitar. It was crazy. So all, we all like grew up together 
in in uh, Pelham Parkway in the Bronx, right near Arthur Avenue near Fordham Road. And uh, all the clubs were just full of bands, and it was all Italian, uh, Italian occupied. You know, we all grew up there. Drogs Neck, you know Arthur Avenue. You know, we had <clears throat> Country Club, so we had a lot of strongholds where we were living and growing up, and <clears throat> and uh, they were they were occupying all these clubs, and you know eventually it started dying out, and I was I brought in the first disco into the Bronx. It was called the Playhouse. It was on Pelham Parkway. I mean, Williamsbridge Road and Pelham Parkway. And one by one, all of these clubs with the bands just started going down one by one. I do want to take a, a quick step back because like you said, we jumped around a little yeah. bit. Your father started his business. Was he the one that like was born in Italy or was he your grandfather? Well, I'm kind of curious how that, yeah. how that happened, how he ended up opening a club. My whole family came from Italy. So they all came over here in the, in the 30s and 40s. From what part? Naples. Napolitano. Okay. There you go. Yeah. So they settled in, not 30s and 40s, 40s and 50s. And they settled in right in the South Bronx on 149th Street, 3rd Avenue, Washington Avenue. And uh, they all took over this one building. And all the aunts and uncles and sisters and the brothers all lived there. The, the married couples. And they're in all two or three of them are in the same apartment because nobody bunch. you're coming here with no money, you know. Yeah, yeah. So and then each one had a store in the bottom of the building. Uh, my uncle had the shoe, shoe repair. My other uncle had the, the meat, the butcher shop, and then my grandfather had the grocery store. I mean his wife, and that's where they settled in. So my father was uh, born over there in in the states, and my uncle Sonny, his brother. Uh, they were born there. And my mother lived around the corner. So they all grew up in that neighborhood. So I guess he knew my mother as a teenager. Mm -hmm. And long story short, when my grandfather passed away at an early age of 51, who was loved in that neighborhood, they loved him. Uh, because at that time, there was such poverty going on. And he had the grocery store, and he was a good guy. And he used to give away half the food and let them take it out on credit. And, and he had this big red book that that they said I had years later. My cousin told me about it. Everybody who owed me money in the book because nobody had money. How, how, did, that, how did that work out? Yeah, oh, uh -huh. that book is still there. It's still there. <laughs> There's no scratches on the book. <laughs> it's brand new. Any interest on those? Shit, <laughs> <laughs> back then, 30%. <laughs> so now, when he passed away, my father was going to college to be a draftsman, and he had to help my grandmother in the grocery store. So he couldn't take it. He could take being in our grocery store, and him and his black partner opened up a place called Alley's East, right on the corner of 149th and 3rd Avenue. And he borrowed money from, you know, the mob to open up the place because he didn't have no money. And he had a great idea, and the place was beautiful. And opening, right before opening night, there was a fire in the place, and it burnt a hole in the whole roof. And there was a hurricane, and the entire place got destroyed. Oh and he wind up still opening the grand opening and everybody was in there with umbrellas and wow. my mother and everything. So we grew up in that neighborhood. So it was Italian and black. And as the white people started leaving, the Italians started leaving, our family stood. So I grew up in that neighborhood and things were so, so then he had to borrow more money to fix the place back up. Was that, I was really in Can that. I ask you something? Yeah. Was that like a, a fix in a sense or did it naturally 
Like, was that somebody playing something on your father or the fire? Oh, oh no, the fire? Yeah. No, no, no. Okay. It was just uh, electrical. I thought fire. that was a way to get more money. I have oh, to wait. ask this question. You don't have to answer if it's personal, but how much did he borrow? Do you know, like, the number? Oh, to build a place back then, what could he have borrowed? 15000 to build the whole place. Yeah, but today is probably like. Yeah, million, like, like 300, 400. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, yeah. even more. That was in the. That was like 52, 53. Wow. Yeah. You know why I asked? Because my dad, when he bought this building, he had to borrow money to buy it too. And it was like, you know, 200,000. Like, yeah. So it's. Now, did so many oh, you buying the building. They were just building. Now, like, point. when you had to pay them back, did you. How did that happen? Did you actually. I, I remember them coming to the house one time and. And I remember my mother screaming, and I think they actually hit him, hit my father in the house for the money. Because he, he wasn't making the money at the club, you know, it just started. And um, so my mother had to go work there as a bartender. So me as a baby, two, three years old, four years old, I'm not going to school. I'm, I'm in the bar with her in the day because he couldn't afford to pay a bartender. Wow. So she used to tend bar. So I grew up in that neighborhood. So I'm on the corner. I'm the only white kid with all these black kids, and we're in the fire hydrant, and we're shooting the hoop in a in a in a basket in, in, in a milk crate. Yeah, in a milk crate. <laughs> yeah. You know, whatever we could do, stick ball in the street. So me, I was so comfortable in that environment. I just thought that that's how everybody else grew up. Yeah. I had no clue about racism or you know, because half my uncles were were black. Uncle Jake, Uncle Bull, you know, and even at our dinner table, my father, they used to come over. So I just thought everybody's home was like this. And the Italians and the blacks were kind of similar in the things they liked. They loved to eat. They loved food. They loved fast cars. They loved women, you know. <laughs> jewelry. They loved jewelry. They liked money. They liked to get high, you know. <laughs> so it was a win-win. So um, You remember the first time you experienced racism? When I was uh, one years old. I mean, when I was one years old, when I was six. Then you got old. good memory like that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember. I, I was up on the corner to break dance at one years old. Yeah, when I was young, uh, in the neighborhood. But uh, I, uh, my family always embraced all nationalities. You know, that's how we were. Italians love to just cook and let everybody eat. Yeah, that's what it's all about. So once this club, he, I'm assuming he fixed it then after. So he, yeah, he fixed it up, and then it became successful. Uh, eventually, because uh, they started building these big uh, buildings across the street. So all the construction workers started coming there, drinking and eating and everything. And it kind of took off. And then he went and opened up another club with his partner, and it was called Pepper and Salt on 167 Jerome. By that time, I was about 17, 16 years old. And I was in there helping him paint it and everything. I was going to high school uh, right near the, the, uh, in a place, in a school called All Hollows. Um, and, uh, he opened the club up and it was, it just blew up. It was a jazz club and, uh, they served soul food and, uh, all him and his partners, they had all these tuxedo jackets, plush velvet. And uh, my father played the trumpet. His partner played the, uh, the keyboard and his other partner played the xylophone and they had this little band and, uh, they used to do whatever. George, I met George Benson there. I met Walt Frazier from the Knicks there. Sick. You know, Homer so was a hot from spot. The Giant. It, was a, it became a hot spot. Uh, politicians used to go there, and that was the beginning of his success. My father didn't make it until he was in his uh, you know, late 40s. He started doing very well. And then uh, eventually we went down the block, <clears throat> and before the fever was, we opened up a place in the Bronx called the Golden Hour. And it was on Pelham Parkway and White Plains Road. 
And that's when I told you before about the Italian neighborhood and it was Italian. All the bands were Italian. And just the gigolo, anywhere I go. That used to be the, the in record every week. Every band played that. And uh, all the bands were uh, very successful and they used to go around to, from club to club. So like the, cons- the cons- like you said, okay, now the construction workers were coming. I want to like kind of bring this up, but back then, these bars, people would just go there to get a drink during lunch too. It's not like it is today. Like you go to a bar at night, it's oh, a it bar was- is like, instead of getting a bottle of water, you go buy, like drink a pint of beer yeah. during lunch or something. Well, especially the construction workers, you know, they're drinkers, yeah. they're, they're tough guys. So for lunch, you know, when they get off for that hour, they're going in to get their juice yeah. and then they're going back, probably screwing up the building after a while. But, <laughs> and then back then, what the hell were drinks? What could drinks have been? I remember when we were in the Golden Hour, drinks were a dollar. Top shelf was a dollar fifty in 1970. So in the in the 60s and the 50s, what could it have been? 25 to 50 cents for a drink. Crazy, you know. So I miss those days. White Castle was you eight remember cents. Them? Yeah. Eight cents a burger, White Castle. What, what I wanted to tell you, Sal, anybody I've met that's grown up in Harlem or the Bronx, the way you guys say 100 just blows my mind. <laughs> like, I'm on 167. You say hun. You say hun. 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 Hun 67. So how old were you when you started make, working? In, uh, we make all our words up. Huh? <laughs> how old were you when you started working at Nightlife? Or 17. 17, officially. First night was at Pepper and Salt. My dad said, why don't you come? I, I, was, I was getting out of high school. I just finished high school. And it was that summer. And I had got me my first brand new car, a Wildcat, Buick Wildcat convertible, brand new, top down. And I had these beautiful spoke hubcaps. And I went to work there as the waiter. I couldn't understand one thing anybody would say. Yo, man, what's up? Give me a black and water. I don't know what drinks are and everything. <laughs> Yo, Johnny Walker Red. I'm like, what's Johnny Walker Red? And everybody knew I was, you know, it was my dad as a kid. And I go outside to go home. The hubcaps were gone. I said, that's it. I ain't working over here no more. And you live right there too? No, that was on 167 Jerome. That was pepper and salt. So he had me working there. And then he opened up on uh, Gun Hill Road and uh, not Gun Hill Road, or White Plains Road and Pelham Park, we called the Golden Hour, along with my uncle. My uncle, Sonny Abbott, his real name was Abitello, my father's brother, was a big time guitar player, made records that were on the pop charts. And he had a TV show and he was considered one of the best guitar players in the country. And he played at the Copa for about a year straight in the lounge. So he knew all the big stars, Sinatra and everybody. So he opened up a club and he, my father designed it and they put the band behind the bar. And they threw me behind the bar, 18 years old. I'm the bartender now in this uh, older Italian place where you know, everybody from the neighborhood is there. And uh, my uncle played, he had, he had a band too. And uh, that's where Charles Palmolari got his start uh, playing in there. And uh, Joe Pesci, and I met all those guys. And, you know, all the guys that were made men, they were in there. They took, they loved the place because the band was behind there. So they were like the center of attraction. Everybody could see them, give everybody a drink on me, you know. Yeah. Uh, I just want to make sure I got this right. Your your dad your dad's last name is Abatello, but his brother changes to Abbott. Is that yeah. to, for music reasons? To yeah, like- well, my uncle did it. He, he did it for music reasons because an Italian couldn't get work that day. That in that time on TV in the in the fifties and early sixties. Why, why was that? Uh, I don't know. I guess racism. You know, back then, just like it wasn't like culture. It wasn't. Or? Yeah, it wasn't cool to have it 
uh, an Italian with a vowel at the end of their name on TV. Gotcha, gotcha. Yes, that was especially for the TV show. And I think it was more commercial. So from 17 to... How like how long were you just kept working from 17? You started as a bartender and I haven't then- stopped. So I was a bartender for a few years. And then when I noticed, I started going out, you know, when I was 19, going to clubs up in the, in the city, uh, Xenons and all these clubs that have DJs, you know, big time DJs. And in those days, then nobody spoke on the microphone. It was just blended records. There's no MCs. Hell no, nobody. There wasn't even a microphone in a, in a DJ booth. And then it's, uh, disco music started really getting big in Westchester on Central Avenue. And these two clubs opened up called Fudgies and Milky Way, which would... I love Fudgies and Milky huge, Way. Huge. Snacks. Huge clubs. Big thousand people. <laughs> and I went and got a job in one of them on the weekends. I was the major D, and I started bringing in all the disco acts. Harold Melvin, Teddy Pendergrass, uh, the Tramps, uh, Sister Sledge. That's in the know, 70s? Pointer Sisters. Uh, let me see. I was, uh, 72, 72, like that. Yeah. I was about 21, 22 years old. So I was, I became the major D in the booking agent there. And, uh, that's when. Did your dad get mad that you like worked somewhere else a couple of days? Huh? Did your dad get mad that you worked somewhere else a couple of days? No, no, not at all. He supported it. Well, because the the clubs, all the bands were going out. The the club started dying. Okay. Disco music started taking over. Yeah. So all the all the clubs in the Bronx, there was about fifteen of them, popping. All of them were popping. Mm-hmm. Yonkers, even the Bronx, you know, <clears throat> and uh, they all started going out one by one. DJ took over. A DJ could play a hundred hits in a row when a band can only play ten, fifteen hits, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in a set. Earlier, you're talking about disco fever. I can't like explain enough how iconic. Disco fever. Whenever anybody says disco, it's like they automatically always say fever, like right after. Yeah. And I never knew. Like obviously I knew disco fever, but I also think it's like a state of when you're like dancing to be like, yeah, I have disco fever. Yeah. It's such That's a mem- crazy that memorable household name, you know. It's a household na- <clears throat> word, you know. And yeah. then when I created the logo um, with this old man who used to make uh, painting uh, signs for the club with the ultra violet paint and they would put the blue light under it so when you walked into the bar it was like performing live uh, jazz night chicken night uh, wing night (laughs) you know uh, all these crazy things that they used to do in these bars and that's how they advertised so when I asked them I said I want a logo with a thermometer because it's hot like and a record you know that's cool catchy and we came up with the fever catch it and it's such an easy thing to promote Anything, you know, it became, became legendary, that name, all over the world. So 2023, we celebrate 50 years of hip-hop. I think that's why we're all here today, because, uh, you know, we were told that you had a huge role in that. So I kind of want to know how you saw hip-hop born, like being born in the Bronx. Well, like I said, we were working, I was working at the bar, and after the bar closed at 4 o'clock in the Bronx, Everything was uh, unmonitored, so we could stay open till six, seven in the morning. Back then, yeah, at, at Serve, the, serving the alcohol fever. too. They just served it. You had a liquor license. It had ended four, okay. but nobody, you know, nobody it took care of the cops and everything. And you stay open days. as long as you want. <clears throat> and then I would go down there, have a drink, relax, 
you know, chill out with my dad. And I, we lived in Jersey. We left the Bronx and moved to Jersey at that time. So that was on the way back because uh, it was on the way home. And I, uh, at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, this DJ would get up after the house DJ left, mm-hmm. and he would start DJing. And his name was Sweet G. That was his DJ name. And now I'm sitting in the club and I'm drinking, and he starts playing these records, and he's talking on the microphone. Now, remember, there was no talking on the, you know, in my disco, it was just the DJ blending back and forth. It was all about doing the hustle and dancing. and You know, it wasn't about talking on the mic. And he's rhyming all these nursery mimes. Jack and Jill went up the hill to catch a bale of water. Jack fell down the hill and down. Say ho. And the whole place is going ho. And I'm sitting back going, the hell this guy is like the Pied Piper. Everything he's saying, the whole crowd is responding to him, which made me click. I said, oh, damn. This is, he's making all the people in the place be as one person. It, they were interacting with each other, strangers. So it was so easy to interact with people you didn't know because now you're all doing the same thing together. Mm-hmm. They became like the chorus line, you know? Like it was like Moses. Partner uh, at Partner C. And everybody said, and you, you know, you got a doctor here and a hooker here and a pimp here <laughs> and a drug dealer there and a school teacher there. <clears throat> now they're all becoming one person and they're all enjoying this situation they have together that they're repeating everything this guy's saying and it was going with the music and I, I walked up to him after one night and I said yo where, where could I see what is this he said ah it's in the South Bronx in the streets you know uh, people are talking and emceeing over the music and that's what the teenagers are doing he was the same age as me so at that time he was about 21, 22 but he was head of a group home so he was dealing with the urban kids in the streets so he had a little you know, he had a foot in it, in the door. So we went to a few parks, and finally I went to a park where Grandmaster Flash was playing. Yeah. And he's hooked up to the pole. And all these kids in there, there's like hundreds and hundreds of kids after school. Because it was a teen movement. Um, and he's DJing, he's mixing back and forth, and all these guys are talking on the music over the microphone. And I walked up to him, and I was like, yo. I said, I... I I got this place. I didn't even tell my father yet. I said, I got this place. I want you to come DJ at. You're going to be famous because people could come see you. And he's looking at me like, who the hell is this white guy? You know, I'm 22 years old. You're going to make me famous? I'm famous already. <clears throat> Look at this. You know, I said, no. This is going to be a place where you could have a, a real setting and people could come see you. Like record companies and people. You know. The first place was smaller? Like the the place you first saw him was, no, it was in the park. Oh, oh it was in the park. Outdoors. This is outdoors. Oh, I thought this park. was like a, a club. No, no, there was no clubs. There was nothing. This was like in the park. That's crazy. Remember now, disco was disco was the hottest. That's thing crazy. Out. So you're like the disco first person R&B. to bring it in in a club. I was so I went to see it, and I said, if you come work at it, so I go back to see him again, and I said, look, come. I'm gonna we'll do a Tuesday night. No, I'm not doing no Tuesday night. So I go back to my, I didn't even ask my dad yet. So I go back to my dad and I said, look, I found this, this music, the guy that goes on at five in the morning. It's going to blow up. I'm telling you, it's going to, it's going to be the newest thing. Nah, I don't want to do this shit. I said, come on, give me, give me a Tuesday. He said, all right, I'll give you two. He did it just to shut me up because all his friends were against it. They said, nah, they talk on the 
mic, they spit on it, they don't sing, they're using <laughs> other people's music, it's not real, it's fake, it's, this, it's disgraceful. It's literally you know, hip-hop. Yeah. What they're doing. <clears throat> now, it wasn't no gangster stuff or anything, it was all party music, nice stuff, nursery rhymes and, and, and rhyming, you know, about good stuff, birthdays and stuff. So anyway, I go back to Flash, and I said, look, I'll give you $50 to come DJ. So he talks me up to 100 so I said, I'll give you 100 He goes, well, what about the Furious Five? Furious, whatever, his rappers. So I said, all right, another $50. So anyway, we agree. I said, if you come there, I'm telling you, you're going to get famous. So we do our first night. It's a Tuesday night called Terrible Tuesdays. And, <laughs> and uh, it's a dollar to get in, a dollar a drink. By the way, I will say 150 for the entertainment seems like a lot. Well, those days, right? I went over, right? <laughs> but I'm getting like four guys for it. Remember, they got to carry up crates. Yeah, and yeah, okay. I'm on the second floor, and they got to rent a van to bring the crates in. Yeah. Remember, and some was your dad like happy? They didn't with... have cars. It was OJ's. They were taking the crates of records out of the OJ's. Was your dad happy when you spending like hundred fifty dollars on a Tuesday? No, he didn't even come. Nobody even cared. They thought it was gonna flop. So anyway, I'm handing out these paper flyers in the street for a couple of days myself. I'm going around to one fifty, one thirty. Uh, uh, 149th Avenue, Fordham Road, and I'm handing them all over the place in the South Bronx on 170th Street in front of the high schools. 700 kids show up. We got four people working. <laughs> there's no pay phone. I mean, there's no cell phones. There's no beepers. And I, I'm trying to get on the pay phone and I'm calling. Hurry up, call the other, call Pepper Soul. Tell them to send down some friends, some people. I'm calling up all my friends from a pay phone. Nobody's answering the phone. If you ain't near the phone back then, that's it, you're done. You got to be sitting there, your phone in your house. Yeah. <clears throat> or sitting there a pay phone and, and you knew the, the number. Yeah. And uh, that was it. It was, everybody was devastated. But who was in there? All these street gangs were in there. You know, all teenagers. Yeah. They're coming in 15, 20 at a time. So now, and here's this white guy that's 25 years old who's running this club. And, you know, but being in that environment and in that neighborhood my entire life, you know, I just fit in where I was so comfortable being in that environment. I wasn't nervous. I wasn't afraid. I was just, I knew how to handle them. And, you know, I knew how to handle being with them because a lot of them were, were our family and friends. So anyway, club takes off. Now we, I said, let's do another night. We do, I go, let's do the weekend, Friday and Saturday, but we'll do a dress code. So I find this Puerto Rican DJ, Junebug, who's phenomenal. And I had Sweet G, who was the manager, I made him the MC. So now we're open Friday and Saturday, and it takes off. Pack, winds around the corner. And then eventually I went Thursday, Wednesday. I'm bringing DJ Hollywood, DJ Eddie Chiba, DJ Rezzy Wells, Lovebug Starsky, Starchild, Brucey B. And these are all the biggest. And I was giving everybody two or three a night. Then we got lucky. There was a store downstairs that went out of business, and we took it. So then we had two floors. Then we had rooms in the back that we started pushing out and, and making the place bigger. Uh, and in the back, uh, we had these slot machines back there, Joker Poker games. We had Pac-Man games back there. So I started putting all this entertainment all over the club. And then to um, then it became like the YMCA of the Bronx, uh, it was very mentor. I was mentoring a lot of the kids because a lot of them were unmonitored. You know, there were kids in high school or 19, 20 in college. Parents were, you know, working two jobs. They weren't home. 
you know, they were just, these kids were just out there. Some of them had parents who were drug addicts. Some of them were homeless. Some of them didn't have parents. They were living with grandparents. <clears throat> so what I did was not only run the club, I ran it according to what the situation needed to help mentor these kids. Uh, so on Thursday night, I had entertainment night. And I would do the dating game to show them how to have a format to have organization. And the prize, I would get them uh, to go in a limo, to go to the city, mm -hmm. to go to a Broadway play, which they would have never in their life ever got. And I would get them first and second row seats. They would come back to the fever on the day, two couples, <clears throat> and come in the club for free and drink for free all night. That was the dating game. The bikini contest, $2,000 in cash prizes. So everything I did was giving money back to the community uh, in a way of, but having it as entertainment. Then the gong show came. Uh, Kid and Play was in the gong show. Force and D's was in the gong show. Uh, Slick Rick was in the gong show as Gay Fever. So many people got their starts in the gong show, but it was, again, 2,000 prize, cash prize. And I would give out trophies every week, so it would last like eight, nine weeks in a row. Then the finals would come, and we would give all these trophies to the first five people. And what was it? I named that tune. I would sit on stage and the DJ would play a few bars of the music and I would and if you came in the club, you got a ticket to get in. And if your name was called, hey, number 462, come on down. You're the next contestant on Name That Tune. And they would go up there and we would have a a, a, a school bell and then he would play the record and what is it? Uh so Motown, show, uh, Love Child. And I would pay them right there, cash. And I would have a, a grand finale. So Thursday night blew up. And then we were open seven nights a week for 10 years. Wow. Three, over 3,000 nights of hip-hop in a row, dealing with that environment and dealing with the, the, the tragedy of what goes on in that neighborhood. Uh, some people at the end of the night had no money to leave. Sal, could you give me a few dollars for so I could ride the train all night and come back to the fever the next night. Sal, could, could I stay here overnight? I had people live in the club. I had nowhere to go. I would leave them a few dollars. I would leave them the key to the club. This is customers. It was so heartbreaking. How many people, their families, uh, God forbid somebody passed away. Their family was still in the morgue for three months, two months. They didn't know, you know, put a stein up on the wall tonight. The, the door fee is going to the Johnson family, you know. To, to bury them and with respect. Was was the fever viewed by the community, maybe by people who weren't involved, as dangerous? You, you mean regular people? Yes. Oh, well, remember, if you're getting seven, eight hundred people, obviously. Anything's dangerous. You know, you have you know, you have your gangs and everything and you still you still have have that with hip hop clubs though. That of people look at as dangerous. Oh yeah, look, come on. There's more good people than bad people. Let's so who go through the who were some of the people that performed yeah. at the fever because yeah, that's what's going, that's it is absolutely going. legendary. So now once Tuesdays takes yeah. off and Flash is becoming the start, sure enough, Sugar Records came to the club, signed Flash right out of the DJ booth, Sylvia Robinson. So now here comes the I'm in the office and I hear this record. Do the bang bang boogie, say up jump the boogie to the rhythm like. The hell's rapping on the mic at <laughs> nine o'clock in the evening and i go outside they said nah that's a record i went a record they made a record it oh shit i said wow that's pretty smart they raised put put that shit on the record 
Well, little did I know. So now, who was coming there? Back then, KTU was the big radio station. Yeah. That's when disco was big. And Carlos De Jesus used to come hang out at my place. He was one of the big jocks on KTU. And he had a TV show called Hot Tracks. So he came to the club and I said, yo, Carlos, you have to play this record on KTU. He goes, I can't play a hip-hop record on KTU. I go, I'm telling you, put it on when you do make it or break it. You know, like, let the, let the people decide. He goes, nah, I'm, I'm telling you, Carlos, this is going to be the biggest record. It's the biggest record in the club. He knew it was. He goes, but I don't think my boss is going to let me. I said, put it on your make it or break it. Puts it on, whatever it was called back then, make it or break it. Or It was the most requested record ever in the history of KTU when that, phone, when that record went on the radio. Why? All teenagers are calling it up. There's nobody in their 20s and 30s. and 40s. All, all high school kids are calling them. It took off. Once that happened, he started playing it, and then that's when hip-hop took off. Then Curtis Blow came out. Uh, he used to come to the club as a, as a kid. One day he's on the, the regular line. The next day he's on the VAP line. I'm like, who's this guy? It's Curtis Blow. He's got Christmas rapping out. He's got a freaking record called Christmas rapping. I go, he made a record about Christmas? <laughs> and that shit took off. He became the first uh, rapper on uh, a major label. Now, all of a sudden, the customers are becoming recording artists. So picture this every week now. Now, now it's blowing up. Now you got Treacherous 3, Spoonie G, Cold Crush Brothers, Furious 5, Sugar Hill Gang, and all these groups, uh -huh. and they're hanging out in the club. So there's no gangs back then. There, I mean, uh, no entourages. They all came in by themselves. Right now, sometimes in one night, they have 20 or 30 recording artists in the club at the same time with no no hassle walking in and out you know no 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 entourages to come by themselves were they famous at that point huh were they famous Me? at that point no the the artists were they famous oh yeah well they're on the radio now look yeah. at Curtis Blow <clears throat> then Sugar Hill became world famous mm -hmm. so and then Sugar and then rappers the, uh, I mean uh, Grandmaster Flash once they started making all those records Happy Birthday and all the big records uh and the, when the message came out, then they started going like, so what they used to do, we had a payphone that was connected to the DJ booth. We have the payphone rang, we would uh, pick up the phone in the DJ booth. And when they would be overseas, they were so homesick, they would be calling in and we'd have Flash talking on the microphone <laughs> with the phone in the DJ booth. And then Sugar Hill and all of those guys used to call Sequence and made that record going to funk. You right on on, but going to funk you. Funky Four Plus One, Shah Rock, uh, that discovered so many. It was just unbelievable. Did Fat Joe time. ever come in there? Oh, that was he was a kid. He didn't. He was second fever. <laughs> he was in the nineties. Fat Joe. This is seventies yeah. and eighties. Oh wow, we're talking eighty one, eighty two. Yeah, this is early on. Eighty three. What would you say back then if you had to think back and remember, like, oh my God, what was the craziest night at the Fever when you were around that age? <laughs> there was too many crazy nights. <laughs> Every night. Tuesday. Uh, Did was, you ever have someone come in that you weren't expecting? or? Oh, there were celebrities all the yeah. time. Uh, yeah. Uh, Sidney Poitier, uh, politicians, uh, M. Tume, Juicy. Yeah, uh, I mean, every, everybody came there. Uh, uh, basketball players, you know, whoever was anybody at that time. And the biggest drug dealers that were back then, you know, Nicky Bonds and all those guys, you know, that was a place to be. But they only came at the end of the night. You know, they get their moet. 
you know, they would be buying all the girls, Moet, and back then the splits, Moet splits were very popular, put a straw in it. And it was actually when we got in People Magazine in 83. Picture this, a hip-hop club in People Magazine in 1983. My picture with Curtis Blow, and we got the, the Christmas uh, kids. We got uh, somebody sipping Moet out of a straw, which was, Moet was like this classy champagne back then, only the rich drank. And I'm putting a straw in it with a, ch a cherry. You know, we had so many trends that we created back then. Uh, Timberland Boots, you know, it used to just be, with the, the mid, Midwest people, uh, the construction workers, and that's chopping trees down. Now, all of a sudden, it's the in-boot, you know, and the stock goes from 20 to How $80. How happen? Like, what made Timberland so popular? Once anything, anybody hip-hop wore, whether it was a uh, whether it was Adidas suit like Run DMC uh, or Puma, whatever, whatever they wore, sheepskin coat, you know, uh, Kango, uh, they just took over, you know, it just, because there was such a big clientele for it. And as you see today, it went to the world. Now. The you whole guys, world. you guys had run DMC's first show ever there at the fever, correct? <clears throat> well, 83 was when everything really, when it really blew up, when the fever went viral around the world, because everybody wanted to know about hip hop now, because now it's out there four years on the radio. There's groups out there. There's tours out there. And now, where could I see this? And there's this one club in the Bronx called Disco Fever. And they want to go. So I had Italy Magazine there, Sweden, each week, Germany, Japan, China. It was so fascinating. And they knew they could come there and they were safe to get in. Because I had a crew. I mean, most of my bouncers were all ex-cons that I took in with me. And we formed our own. We had, we had a family. You know, at that point in 83, I had five places. We had about 180 people working for us. You know, so I had an opportunity to give people work because back then the, the unemployment was... How was, like, freestyle in these parties? Did a lot of people listen to freestyle, too? Freestyle music. Oh, that didn't come till after. 85, 86. But the, for, what he, the point he's getting back to with Run DMC. So 83 is when the fever blew up uh, nationwide. So it was only Disco Fever and Studio 54 were the most popular clubs. Yeah. But, I mean, 54 lasted about a year and a half, maybe. So That's it? That was it. If you watch the documentary. Everybody always talks about Studio 54. Oh, my God. You would think what it, And it didn't do anything. Like, we created so many opportunities for people in, in, in life and just not the music business. But, you know, showing them uh, that they could be somebody, you know. Uh, and, and that was very, very in tune with the, with the crowd. I didn't cater to the hustler. I catered to the, the regular person because those are the people that would support you night after night. So anyway, I opened up Fever Records in 83. Uh, I put out a record called Games People Play, which I wrote in my after-hour place because uh, that's the name of it was Games People Play. So we had like a, we had a, a after-hour place in, a, in a, an apartment building on the second floor and we had a crab table, we had a blackjack table, we had slot machines, and uh, I was smoking a joint one night, and I was just sitting down writing what I saw was going on about games people play. And I write this whole song, and I give it to Curtis Blow, and it's like, yo, Curtis, I wrote this record. He goes, nah, man, I can't put out a record where a white guy wrote a record. <laughs> I'm telling you, the fucking lyrics is off the hook. And everybody's telling him the lyrics, because he wrote uh, 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 music, a song, but they didn't have the lyrics. Anyway, finally he hears it, it 
and it comes out. And they named it after my after hour place games people play. And we actually had a real dice game in the studio. If you hear in the beginning of the song, give me a shooter for the dice. And me and Crazy Eddie and me and the guys are shooting dice and they're recording it. And the record went out. It went to number one, my first record. Number one on KTU, wow. number one on KISS, wow, number one on uh, BLS, all at the same time. So now the Fever is the biggest club out. I got my first record is the number one record in New York. I'm blowing up in every TV show or magazine. That's anything. And when People Magazine came there, that was the ultimate. When People Magazine. Then Time Magazine came. Rolling Stone Magazine. I mean, we're getting pages of it. <clears throat> and I did uh, a lot of TV shows, Two on the Town, NBC News, uh, how hip-hop was blowing up in the, in the fever and in the Bronx. And the, they, the guys were just getting more popular, more popular. And then um, Run DMC came out. And Run DMC's record was finally when hip-hop took a turn to get a little harder. It's like that, the way it is. It wasn't the party music. Suck MC, you know, mm -hmm. talking shit now, you know, like it's mm -hmm. like, yo, it's what we say. It's, it's not nursery rhymes anymore. No, nah, it, yeah. it ain't happy birthday no more. <laughs> it ain't heartbeat. It make me feel so weak. And uh, it changed the course of hip hop to go that. Then the Beastie Boys came out. They did their first show in the fever. Uh, uh, Curtis, or, or, you know, all the guys. New edition. And then, and then, and then as we're getting more popular, Hollywood starts looking around to make movies. So Wild Style came out, and there was another hip-hop movie, a very popular one. Uh, what the hell was the name of it? Beat Street. That came out. And the fever was not in any of them. And then finally, Russell Simmons, uh, Charles Stetler, and, uh, and Warner Brothers decided to put out a movie. And thank God it was Crush Groove in 1985. And uh, the fever was a big part of the movie. I played myself in a movie, my first acting role in my last, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I made a big mistake. How was that? Were, were you a good actor? Oh, uh, you're gonna have to watch Crush. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely didn't win no Spoil Oscar for that shit. That's right. <laughs> well, I tell you one thing: they let me use my own lines. Oh, that's, I, that, that makes it easier. You were yourself. You were I was, yourself. I, they say, "Just be yourself." And uh, the movie came out. And it was going to be the biggest movie. And every theater it went to was sold out. And unfortunately, the theaters weren't prepared for the crowds. And there was a lot of fighting and riots at the theaters because they couldn't get in. They, didn't, they, they weren't prepared for this. And unfortunately, they pulled it out of all of the theaters yeah. because they thought the movie was violent. The movie was so gp Right? Crush Groove. There was nothing, not, not even a curse word in the movie. And unfortunately, the movie didn't get the recognition it should have gotten around the world. <clears throat> and it got pulled right out of the theaters right away. It was too viral. Too, damn shame. And uh, another big, and the scene in the movie where um, the fat boys win the contest, that was a real live situation at the Fever when we did a, a, a talent show. And we did it in five boroughs. And I went to five boroughs as a judge, meet Curtis Blow, Mr. Magic, rest his soul, WBLS, the pioneer of uh, getting the first hip-hop show on the radio, major radio, because he was on HBI first. And uh, we got sponsors. We got Coca-Cola to sponsor it, BLS to sponsor it. And we had the first 
hip hop show at Radio City Music Hall, and everybody got in for free. Wow. That was the deal. So they gave me 1,500 tickets. So picture this, all my customers, kids, they're going to Radio City for the first time ever, and they're going to see a show of their people, of their music. Curtis Blow headlined it. Sweet G opened up. Sweet G was the first rapper to be at, the, at, at Radio City. Fearless Four was there, Houdini, UTFO, and then we had the contest in between. And that's where the Fat Boys won the contest at Radio City. I was a judge. And what happened at Radio City, too, so many, <clears throat> you know, got thousands and thousands of urban kids coming, teenagers. Freaking Radio City was bugging out. They never saw no shit like this. I had to have all my bouncers be ushers because they were going to shut the place down. They weren't even going to let us do the show. And then I had to take control of Radio City with all my staff <laughs> to get everybody in quietly and because they all came at the same time. And Radio City was just freaking out. Anyway, and we all got in and that scene became a big scene in the movie. We're very excited to announce a long-term partnership with the Soto Gastronomia out from Australia. This guy's got a really, really interesting restaurant. Desoto has a very interesting story. So they're first generation Italian Australians. They're basically us in Australia. Desoto was created in their parents' and grandparents' honor so that they can pay their legacy forward. 100% of their proceeds goes to people in need, charities, and the arts. Desoto will be supporting us this year, so you know the content's going to be even better. Bro, and who knows? Maybe at some point we're going to have to take a trip down on that. I was always curious how the Italian Australians made food. It's time we find out. Crispy, crunchy, savory, and sweet. Order what you want on Uber Eats. Listen, guys, from now to the end of the year, December 31st, on the Uber Eats app, you go to Anthony and Panini shop, and you get a nice $25 off. When you use the code Panini. got to use the code Panini. Terms apply. See app for details. So I want to ask you two things. The first one is, did you ever envision all this happening? Like, as a young <coughs> kid, who the hell would have thought you went from jazz to band? Disco. Hip-hop. It's like I've nuts. been so blessed. It was like um, each one had its time. Like, yeah. when one door was closed and the next door opened. But you were on it. When were I it. when I brought the first DJ into the Bronx, you know, I'm like, oh, shit. Look at this. This hits all night long now. And I got these two DJs and I said the to actually set the tone for di disco to be in the Bronx. And then when I bring the hip-hop indoors, I, I knew only because of the reaction of the, the DJ and the crowd having this relationship with each other. I was like, this is... When you're having the crowd involved with the, the music, mm -hmm. now remember, picture now when it's 500, 700. Oh, you know, like everybody's... One person, they know the words. and they're all interacting with each other, and it, it became such an easy way to meet somebody, mm -hmm. yeah. because now you get to smile at somebody. It ain't yeah. like what you looking at, you know. Everybody's like happy, and they're dancing to these really cool songs that are talking about what they're going through every day, you know. Yeah. Especially when Mel made the message, Joey Robinson and Sylvia Robinson, who were the presidents of Sugar Hill Records, they called me up. And I'm having a, like in the DJ booth on the payphone and they're in the studio and they're finishing the song and they said, yo, we're coming over. I go, oh, tonight's our anniversary party coming down. He goes, no, nah, we're coming with the bigger record that's going to be bigger than Rapper's Delight. I went, bigger than Rapper's Delight? Come out. When they put on the message, the whole place, when that song started in the beginning of the song and yo, 
everybody, when when he started saying the lyrics, it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under, you know. And then all the kids, yo, it just took off that night. We must have played it five times that night. That was the first time anybody you, ever heard you funk flexed it. Pressing. <laughs> you funk flexed it. Yeah, we funk flexed it. <laughs> oh, that's my boy. Yeah. I can't talk. He 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 props me up all the time, man. Actually, I saw him Tuesday night at the Red Alert party, uh, the 40th anniversary of Red Alert, and uh, he just was observing me, which I didn't know. And I went over to say hello, and he goes, he goes, yo, man, I gotta say, you are the most passionate people regarding this music that I know. He says, it's an honor to know you. I was like, ah, cool, thanks. That was hot. He's still one of New York's hottest DJs. Without a doubt. Still pulls it in. Sal, real quick, I see you wearing some jewelry on your hand. Yeah, I like the pinky Talk to us. Talk to us about the Juice Crew. For the people who don't know. The Juice Ring. What is? What's the Juice Ring? On both hands. What is the Juice Crew? Yes. The Juice Crew was as we were forming this family, because we all kind of fell in love with each other. It, 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 a lot of these people came from uh, an, uh, an unfamily-like situation. And you know how Italians are. We're so family-like. My mother used to cook, and she would, I would bring down lasagna. They never had real Italian lasagna. Stuffed clams, baked seedy. She's sending all this shit down. And they, and they started falling in love. And they were falling in love with our family because they felt how we had so much respect for you know, the urban lifestyle. And it was part of our lifestyle. <clears throat> and, and how I took care of the neighborhood and whatever anybody needed in the neighborhood. And, and my staff, we, I would have cleanup nights once a month. And they would all come in. And have all the staff from all the clubs that come in and clean the place up. And then we order pizza and we order Kentucky fried chicken. Mm-hmm. And we would be in there all night and we'd be getting high and we'd be smoking a joint. We'd be sniffing blow. <laughs> and we'd stay in there till five, <laughs> six in the morning. But the whole staff and the, the bartenders DJing, the DJs in the tending the bar. And I just made that atmosphere. We would put up the decorations for Christmas together. And, and most of my bounces were ex-cons I would hire. Not one of them, not one of my staff ever went back to jail, ever. And I'm talking about Mandingo, 6'5", 300 pounds, <laughs> running Attica and shit. And now he comes in, he's like, hi, welcome to the video. <laughs> How are you? And then he's in Crush Groove. Wow. Come on in, fat boys, I got to check you out. You know, it was amazing. Bam Bam, I had this security guy, Bam Bam, who was in the Black Spades and uh, who was one of the big guys in the black spades and he started working for me and and we just and we're still friends till today 45 years later I just saw him the other night you know they would they would take a bullet for me and I would for them and uh and, and the more popular we're getting the bartenders and the staff were getting they were becoming celebrities in the entire neighborhood and they watched it mature you know the music mature so the juice ring, so that, that's how the juice ring started. Yeah, show the camera the, the rings right there. Where we are. Here we are. <laughs> Boom. Boom. It ain't that big of a ring. But how this happened was somebody, they, there was always somebody coming and selling furs, jewelry, every, radios, TVs. They steal mm-hmm. the shit in the day, then they come to the fever at night, and I'd be buying everything and giving it out to the staff and shit. So one person came in with this ring, and it had a J in it. It didn't have an S. 
And at the time, Mr. Magic was on this radio station called WHBI Radio, which was the only radio station playing hip-hop. He was uh, renting it. I was one of his sponsors. Sugar Hill was one of his sponsors. And I sponsored the whole year. And we became friends. So his middle name was John. So when he sees the ring, he's like, yo, that's my initial. I go, is it? Because we had become really good friends at that time. Because we had just started the Entertainers Basketball League, which... Is going on for fifty years, forty-five years later. Still to this day, I played in the first game. I had the shot at the buzzer to win the game. They carried me around the park. Three thousand people in the park. What I'm the only white person in the park. <laughs> Sky balls too. Oh my God, crazy! Oh, I hit the shot at the buzzer. I hit the last eleven points actually to oh, okay. win the game. And no the shot deal. at the buzzer. This is real. So this is like they carry me around. So we go to HBI that night. Anyway, with Cowboy, rest in soul, Magic, rest in soul. Then <clears throat> we talked about the game. Anyway. So I started giving, so I, I said, I'm going to make one for me with an S. I'll make one for you, and you take my J. So that's how it started. And then we started calling it the juice rings. Because what's that word when you bust and lose? Juice, juice. How do you get, when did, how do you feel when you got that juice? Loose, loose. So that became the saying. I made that saying up, and the DJs would say it every night. And then me and Magic, would, we would put our rings together and like, shazam, you know? And then everybody else was, Melly Mel's like, yo, like the green Where's my juice there? ring? <laughs> Curtis Blow, where's my juice ring? Flash, Sweet G. And so you then gotta get a bunch? One by one. That's what was everybody's birthday presents. Juice ring, juice ring. Then I started getting it for the girls. <clears throat> and the girls was a big diamond initial ring. The bartenders, the waitresses. How many so juice about, rings are, are out there? <laughs> there's probably none. They probably hot Everybody them all right now. That's um, how they got their button, the juice ring? I even gave one to Frankie Crocker. Rest his soul. You just don't know who he is, but... Uh, I don't know if there's any, I know Mel lost his magic, well, magic passed away, but I don't think anybody still has, Sweet G has his juice ring. He still has his juice ring. Uh, and I started giving them out now. I gave my son, my two sons one. I gave my uh, assistant white boy one. And, uh, and that's how the juice crew started. The, that's why it's called the original juice crew. And then after that, I let magic and Tyrone will cold chilling records use the name mm-hmm. for Big Daddy Kane, Roxanne Shante, who used to come to the club when she was fifteen, and I used to make her go in the office. She had to do her homework. She had to show me her report card because at the time she was like about sixteen years old, and she was hanging out with Magic and all them because they put out that song, you know, Roxanne Shante. Mm-hmm. So, and I wanted to make sure that you know she was monitored and she, she wasn't drinking and she did her homework and. She says it to today that she, she became a, like a, a profession. She got a doctrine. And she attributes that to me all the time, of me keeping her in the office and doing her homework for those uh, time that she was there, that year or two that she was hanging out there. And uh, she always attributes that to me. She's very close with me, Roxanne Chante. I love her to death. And, um, and I just gave her her juice ring. At a concert. Uh, that yeah, how, how much do we have to do to get a juice ring? You uh, <laughs> ain't getting no fucking juice ring, right? World juice ring. No, you, ain't get, go. you ain't got that kind of juice. <laughs> so how did freestyle come about? So now, after uh, hip-hop uh, started hitting 84, uh, bad things started happening. The music changed. You know, then you had Public Entity coming out. It started getting harder. Mm-hmm. You know, now you have West Coast hip-hop coming out. Mm-hmm. And the party music was fading out. Curtis Blow, 
Starsky, Sweet G, Furious Five, you know, uh, all the original guys, T. LaRock. Um, it just started phasing out. The party music just started fading out. Now we're going into the second phase of hip-hop. Then the fever started dying because now Roxy's opening up. Latin quarters, uh, now it's going to the city. A lot of competition. Now it ain't, it ain't even competition. It, it's just killing us. Because now it's taking all my celebrities, Russell Simmons, Leo Cohen, you know, uh, Rick Rubin, Tommy Boy Records, Tom, and now everybody's hanging out at the Roxy. You got Africa Van Bader and all the Soul Sonic Force down there, Africa Islam, and uh, Dancer Terry is doing it, uh, Webster Hall, all these places are doing, this, doing what I did. And they're hiring them, Dancer Terry, you know, they're hiring all the hip hoppers. And that was it. So that's what turned it, that's when it started turning. And then when the movie Crush Groove was gonna give me that second life, because now we're gonna be in a movie. The night that Crush Groove finished videotaping, we got shut down for no cabaret license. So they walk up to me, the, the, the director of the movie says, Sal, yo, they're gonna shut you down. I go, who? He goes, yo, there's a whole bunch of police out here and Squad cars. I'm like, they can't shut me down. He goes, yeah, they said you don't have the light. I got, I got all the licenses. So they let them finish the movie, get all their equipment out. And that night it was Sweet G and Melly Mel's birthday party. They wait till we open and get everybody in the place, thousand people in the place. They come up and raid us and shut us down. We wind up having the party in the street and it became the padlock law. And they padlocked the place. And the only way I could open the place is if I went and paid the fine, got the key, but I could never open up the place again as a dance place. So now the fever gets closed up, and I'm sitting in the park, and I'm like, God oh, damn, what am I going to do with my life now? Oh, God. Fever's closed up. Skate fever closed up. So one by one, all the places are closing up, and uh, I, I'm in this park sitting down, a pole park it was called, and I see this Puerto Rican kid DJing, and he's hooked up to the light pole, just like Flash. And I see these kids break dancing, but they're Puerto Rican, second generation Puerto Rican kids. And I'm like, fuck, Latin hip hop, that's it. And that's how I discovered it. And I made the first record by a young lady called Naomi. Uh, Please Don't Go, oh, a young producer, oh, wow. Puerto Rican yeah. producer called Andy Panda Tripoli, and Tony Moran and all those guys I started. So I opened up a club catering to the same thing I did with the fever, but the second generation Latinas. So I opened up the club before the music was really a Is hit. a different location? Different location, about 170, uh, Tremont and Webster, 177, about 10 blocks from the fever, but in the same neighborhood. And we opened up the club catering to that clientele. And same thing, one by one, I discover Information Society, TKA does their first show there, Naomi. I discovered the Cover Girls with Andy Panda. We put together them, they were customers. Uh, we put out all this record. Then now the high school kids, they're all going to school together. <clears throat> George Lamont, Sapphire, Cynthia, Judy Torres, they're all meeting each other and they're, they're all putting together songs and then before you know it, it blew the hell up. And the Devil's Nest um, gave uh, all the, a lot of them their first opportunity. La India, 
did her first show there. And that's when Freestyle just <laughs> took off. You had a lot to do with the cover girls too, didn't you? Produce cover records? Yeah, cover girls. Uh, we produced all the records. Andy Panda, Tripoli, uh, CNC Music Factory, Little Louis Vega made all, all their records. It came out on Fever Records, which was independent. And actually, we made history. Uh, it was the first album that had five independent charted singles on the Hot 100 chart from the same album. Wow. So that was, uh, we made a little history there. And uh, that was it. And then, then the Devil's Nest closed. The drinking age now changed from 18 to 21, right in the middle of the Devil's Nest. Killed it. Now 18, the party opens up. And what opens up? Heartthrobs, which was the old fun house mm -hmm. where Jelly Bean performed. They take my DJ, Little Louie, off from $1,000 a night. Goes down there. Devil's Nest ends because the drinking age killed it. They became 18 to party with no liquor. So the whole crowd went there. And that was the end of the, the Devil's Nest. And then I became a, a club promoter. I had some of the biggest clubs. <clears throat> 1018, uh, Studio 54 I did. Uh, Exit Club Exit, all, all the biggest clubs. Copa I did for years and years. Mm -hmm. Had my birthday party there for about 10 years on Thanksgiving Eve. Same holiday as you. Yeah. And uh, that was it. And then I became a concert promoter along with Adam Torres, Brian Rosenberg, and... Vito Bruno and all the guys and uh, still doing it. So I never well, had... What are you doing nowadays? Like, what, what's your life like now? Because I feel everything you told me, you adapted to everything life threw at you. And like I said, through my whole career, I never really had a period where I wasn't relevant in some aspect. Either I was managing a hot act or I was booking agent mm -hmm. or uh, I had a hot club. Or I had, uh, or I was a, a concert promoter. Something was always there that triggered into the next thing. I had a club in the city called Downtime that was off the hook for two years. Then I had Essos. Or, so there was always something that ran into something else. You're still doing uh, events now, right? A lot of concerts and yeah, I've performances. Seen, like, I've seen so, you just did a freestyle concert, right? So here's the history of freestyle. So then when freestyle came out, in 84, it died in 93, out cold. Now, again. What I'm, made it die, do you think? What made freestyle uh, die? The music was the same. It wasn't, they weren't putting out new, new producers, new sounds. It got stale, just like the original people in hip-hop. It just had its time. Had a great run, you know, seven, eight years, nine years, packed. I put out the last uh, good album with Lizette Melendez on Def Jam, uh, Sony, and then there was another young lady, Karina, who put out a big record called Temptation and Giggles. And those were the last records. And Little Susie were the last records of freestyle. Then it finally died in 94. It was over. And, but these kids were still young. They were still in their, you know, early 30s. You know, they still had a lot to give. And unfortunately, the music was dead and, and, and it went down to nothing. And I was still trying to keep it alive with my clubs, putting them in here. But they weren't making that much money. They weren't drawing anybody. And hip-hop just blew up. That's when gangster rap came in. And hip-hop was just naughty by nature. And that whole scene, Busta Rhymes, Lord of the Under, you know. Then the Fat Joes started coming in. So Biggie Smalls? Well, that was right after the 92, 93 Biggies came out. Is it true that Fat Joe was a promoter for you? So what happened was I did my 20-year anniversary party in the year 2000. 
and I brought back all the freestyle artists that I had. Now, freestyle's dead for six years. Everybody's making fun of me. I'm 48 years old. Give it up with the freestyle mm -hmm. shit. It's over. It's dead. It's like disco. It's dead. Step on the cassette. It's finished. Step <laughs> on the CD. Step on the dad machine. You know, it's done. And I busted my butt. I handed out 50,000 flyers in the streets. Old school. <clears throat> what shows up? So the owner of the club, I have it at Club Exit. Holds 5,000 people. Yeah. He's laughing at me. He didn't even put on, he didn't even open all the floors. He said, ah, we're going to be roller skating in here tonight. Ain't nobody coming. 5,000 people show up. Every young promoter in the city is going, what the hell, this old guy never, what the hell, he's still doing it? So now all these young promoters, Adam Torres, Adam says, all these guys are coming up to me saying, what is this? So now what do I, what do I discover? I reinvent freestyle again. How? Putting them together as a group, a unit. Yeah. They ain't worth that much alone. They can't fill up in not even a club. But together, as a unit, as 10, now I got 30 hit records in one night. It's like one headline. It was like one Bruce Springsteen, one yeah. NSYNC, one somebody. And Adam Torres did the first show in Connecticut. We sell out 2,500 seats. Remember, we're not drawing nobody. It goes to Mohegan Sun. 11,000 people come. for Freestyle. No bands, just track. Only hit records. 10 minutes on, off, 10 minutes on, off, 15 minutes, just do your hit songs. And it reinvented itself. And that that day I had DJ Scribble at Club Exit, was the only new person. And from that day on, and we are as popular now, maybe even more than ever, because our audience is in their 50s. And they got money. Kids went off to college. Uh, and they're a sit-down crowd, but they want to party. So that crowd is a party crowd from the 80s yeah. and 90s, but they're in their 50s and 60s, and they're bringing their kids and their younger brothers and sisters who are in their 20s and 30s. Yeah, Italians love, Italian Americans love, love freestyle. Italians and Puerto Rican, it's half and half. It's Find a nice cougar at that concert. It's cougars <laughs> and women come sugar, in sugar mama. Women come in droves. <laughs> they come 10 at a time. They leave their guy at home, they don't care. They're coming out to get drunk. Get a smoke a joint, go home, do the wild thing, and then the next day taking Tylenol and, and Advil for their back because they were partying for four or five hours, but and they look forward to the next one. And the same people go to every show. Sold out. Westbury. Uh, we just did Westbury Theater with Brian. I just did Westchester County Center, two thousand people. Uh, it's amazing, and and they're all and now we're all growing up together. They're getting older. Their kids are coming to the con, so that's becoming this new. Family. One of our friends is uh, TK, uh, one of TK's members' son, Thief. Yeah. Who's his, who's his dad? What's his dad? Tony, right? Was it Tony? Well, that was I'm the original. My mind right now. He's not in the group anymore, but that's one of the originals. Tony. Well, one thing I wanted to, you know, being that you're on the Grown Up Italian podcast. I want to talk about, just real quick, the hip-hop days. Was the Italian culture a fan of that, or were they just like, I don't want anything to do with this, you know? Amazing. <clears throat> so now, <laughs> when I go to the club, right? So now, I'm a huge fan of it. I, I embrace it. It's I feel it's part of my culture, because I grew up in the South Bronx. You know, I'm saying it's part of my culture. Uh, every time I brought somebody there, any one of my friends, they would just be amazed. Again, it was an amazement, because... The clubs we were in, nobody could talk on the microphone. You know, it was just DJing, mm -hmm. just blending music. And now they're coming to a place where 
say, hold it, shutting the music off, throw your hands in the air, say, just don't care. And, and, and the crowd, you're saying a rhyme, and the crowd knows the answer to the yeah. rhyme. So every time I brought somebody there, more and more, they loved it. The so then they started, it. they wanted to hang out there. I'm like, oh, God. Sal, <laughs> who, Sal, who is the greatest Italian rapper of all time? <laughs> Joe Pesci. The greatest? Uh, yeah, I guess. He, had a tra- he has a track, right? Do you, Do you know any Italian rappers? Uh... There's like, some DJs, famous uh, DJs, Kid Capri. Kid, Kid Capri. Capri's not Italian. No? He is, no. he is, he is. Kid Capri's Italian? Yeah. No way. Look that up. Google that shit. Fact, uh, fact check that one. I'm good friends with him. There is an Italian. Oh, he's going to kill DJ, me. Again. DJ Scribbles is Italian. Yeah. Now, Scribbles had a hip-hop group called um, uh, uh, Young Black Teenagers. And uh, they performed at uh, the Fever 2. And he was the DJ. And after the group broke up, what was the name of the record? Young Black Teenagers. Tap the Bottle. I fact check. Is, is, is he Italian? He's not Italian, but he did post, I'm the black Italian. Call me black Italy. No, All he right. said, I'm black and Sicilian. Yeah, he's half and half. Are you sure? That's what no, it's... No, it says people still think. Oh, you're right. It does say that. His, do- his, daughter, his daughter says it too. Fact check. Vino, Vino Love, fact yeah. Fact All right. I learned something new. All right, uh, while you're there, Google hey. best Italian American <laughs> rappers. But did you know Joe Pesci has a hit or an album? I, I just no, found he, out. He, he like scrubbed it off the internet. Yeah, did he? Yeah. <laughs> Joe's me, a bitch. Me, me it's called. It it's called. Joe was exactly guy. like that in real life uh, at, at when he was in the band as he is in his funny movies. What kind of music was Joe performing? Oh, all top forty he's, Italian he's stuff. I'm just a gigolo. My way. Slow songs, uh, whatever dance records. I can't right see him singing. They man. did some Motown stuff, you know. Is there footage of this stuff? anywhere? No. Anything? The hip hop. Nobody had di- cameras in no the clubs. No phones. Cause. First of all, there was all mafiosos in the club. You couldn't have no camera in the club. Oh, if, there allowed. was a flashlight. Boom! That guy. Went. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, Felicia. So long, brother. Get out of here. Everybody was with their. And you might not see him no more. <laughs> you might hey, not see him on the camera. <laughs> Hold on, I got the video, of Joe Pesci. Hold on. Photos were very different back then in that time. Now no, everyone's no, taking photos of everything. Nobody even had a camera everything. in a club. Do we, do we have any Italian-American rappers out there? Go ahead, Joe. <laughs> Joe's a character. Not bad, not bad. He's a real star. Good, yeah. thing he didn't, good thing he gave that up, though, right? He's a real star. Legend. What do you think about hip hop? Oh, nowadays? my man Salise. Salise is a rapper. He's a, he's Italian. He's he's uh, he he runs this place up in uh, up in the Rochelle uh, called Noma Noma Social. And there's one other guy that's really popular too. Oh God, Sweatabasta. Sweatabasta. Huh? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, you don't. Are, are you listening to any new hip hop at all yeah, these days? Ask. Are you a fan trap. of anyone? What do you think of trap? You know, it's funny. Uh, a Boogie just sampled a record that uh, is very similar to my games people play. And I don't think he sampled my record, but he sampled the record that I was working with back then. We changed the sound, but I got to look into it because if you hear his new record... You think there's a check out there for He's got that piano part. Oh, if it is, huh? I'll talk to my people. Yeah, But I think he copied the original... Record, which was Curtis Mayfield, but I gotta find out. I gotta make sure. 
So uh, we we um, have a lot of friends that are Italian artists in Italy. I think it might be funny to just show him like one video. Doing hip hop. There's yeah. a huge in Italian. huge emergence of Italian hip hop right every, now. Every country. It's, yeah. become, it's become the biggest music market in the country and it's less than 20 Crazy. years old. I feel like we got to show him one Sveta video. Just it's amazing. Every country. You see in Japan. Uh, you you know, see I, in I could, Korea. Could, you see in Germany. I could put it on my phone too. London. Everywhere. I'll just hand him my phone. All right. So this is Italian trap. TikTok. This is an Italian rapper. Yeah, it's 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 my friend and then a bunch of other artists. It's, it's like five Italian rappers on one. And song. they live in Italy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, they're rapping in Italian. Yeah. He's from Milan. That's an Italian Drake. Like Dominicans, like Puerto Ricans. Yeah. Now it's Italian. Shit, I still got a chance to be a rapper. Yeah. <laughs> you want me to sign you? For the senior citizen. Let me tell you, if I make a record, I, I host all the shows. I do I, I, I do, do hip-hop songs on stage. Huh? Boy, just think about it. Started all with a Tuesday night. Yes, terrible Tuesdays. Cool so, so we just went. We just went to Italy last month, and we went to a, a hip hop only festival. No American, no American artists. All Italian hip hop artists. Eighty five thousand people. First time ever. Eighty five thousand. Usually, what they've done is like book a big artist, like Fifty Cent, and they put the Italians. This is the first time it was only Italian artists that lived in Italy. Yeah. Rapping Maybe. only in Italian. What, where were they in the... In the right now, he's like, I'm about to move to Italy. When outside, 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 this is the new thing. Outside of, a, of the soccer stadium where... Oh, soccer stadium. Yes. Well, it's so that right means next we, to we could bring uh, some of them here then, I guess. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's the goal. Try We're to trying. do it at the... In Maybe we West do free, Theater, freestyle, freestyle into Sveta. That's the way to get the older <laughs> Italians to come out. Is there anything um, else you want to touch on? Anything you think our followers would like to hear about Coming you? Coming up in January, anything? Oh, yeah. Well, I got, I got some concerts. I got a uh, December 30th at Westbury Theater every year at the annual Disco Fever, which I okay. uh, have Tavares. I try to do shows for all different age brackets, and, you know, I do a doo-wop concert in the summer, but I got this Disco Fever going on at Westbury Theater with Tavares, Evelyn Champagne King, The Tramps, Harold Melvin, huge big hits, Lime, Franz Jolie, so I, uh, they had huge hits back in the 70s and the 80s. Uh, then in January, we have two big freestyle concerts in Jersey. The Bergen Pack, one, and the State Theater. You could go online and check out uh, their websites to buy tickets. Uh, and then I have Lehman College, which is my 17th year. 17 sellout shows in a row at Lehman in the Bronx. So I still, you know, keep it real. Awesome, man. I love March that. 18th. I, I always got to keep it real. Roots. And then um, May 18th, I do my annual hip-hop show with Sugar Hill Gang and Melly Mel, The Furious Five, mm. and Peter Guns, and Grandmaster Real hip-hop, real hip-hop shit. Uh, the original guys, Black Sheep, you know, uh, Grand Poobah, all, 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 all the ones that I, I like that I'm friends with, and I bring them back to do their show. 
and uh, and then you know Wellmont Theater, Coney Island, and we do we do the County Center in Westchester. We do about ten a year, and they all do very well. A lot of customers, same customers come to every. They're like fanatics. They're called freestyle freaks. Fix. They're called freestyle freaks. It's an underground crazy. It's, it blew up, and nobody wants to hear new records. They just want to hear the hits. If you got one hit like Suave crying over you. You know, I do the cover girls, TKA, Cynthia. Noel. Lisa Lisa. Noel's my boy. Sapphire. Uh, Sweet Morning. Sensation. Judy Torres. George Lamont. They're all still popular. All yeah. C-Bank. Uh, Brenda K. Starr. And, and, and they, they get standing ovations. It's amazing. But like I said, they grew up with them. So now the crowd, and, the, and they're still the same age, the girls look beautiful. Uh, the guys, no, I mean, nobody's busted. Everybody looks good looking. They, they're dressing up like, you know, they really stepped up their game. And uh, we're just having fun. What I did was I brought in the club atmosphere like they had when they were kids with the DJ, a little comedy, a little showmanship. And I brought it indoors. So as long as they could sit down, they're good. They stand up, they party. As long as they can sit down for a minute, then they get back yeah. up for the next act. Selective yeah. dancer. Yeah. That's basically what I Great do at crowd. weddings. And let me tell you something. You see 40, 50-year-old, I'm talking about guys, gangsters, screaming. And yeah. When you tell the crowd to say something, like say, oh, oh loud. <laughs> you know, and then we were the first ones to bring it to Radio City. That was one of the most exciting, exciting nights. The first night at Radio City, I was the first one to walk out hosting the show. And at Radio City, the light is so blinding, the spotlight. You can't see nothing. It's black. So when I walked out there, I couldn't see nothing. And this is the first time I'm, you know, you're talking to nobody. And I did my thing. This is the first. And they showed this video about Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five of my history. And now, welcome to the first old school freestyle concert at Radio City, you know, produced by Adam Torres and Sal Abitello. And then who sings the first song? Naomi. And it's a cappella, and you hear sweet, sweet love. And a spotlight just goes on her face. And the crowd just, wah. You know, it's like three decks up. And it was amazing. Some of the, some of the acts were throwing up backstage. <laughs> they were getting anxiety. Still partying. Panic attacks. No, they were freaking out. They were so nervous. It was the first time performing at radio. You know, you go there as a kid to see the Rockettes. Right. Now you're on that stage. So you should be very proud of everything you accomplished. Absolutely. Uh, You've been through well, a lot. I've been blessed. I just got my name on the Walk of Fame in the Bronx. Oh, nice. Got, I got my own street, awesome. and it's right in front of the 161st Street Courthouse. So all my customers coming out from their cases, <laughs> they see my name up there. <laughs> yes, That's where it really counts. That's where it belongs, baby. Right <laughs> on the side door, coming out the courthouse. Where could our fans follow you? Uh, www.feverrecords.com. I got the website. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. Guys, buy some tickets. All right. I still, I still check it out, baby. Phone. And uh, I think me and Rock got to come to one of the shows. Oh, great. Yeah, we'd love to. All right. Yo, you'll be amazed of the, 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 the the response of the crowd. Yeah. How they respond, you know. No, I've seen the videos. Crazy. Yeah, I've seen the videos. And I'm up there dancing my ass off, dressed up like Run I'm old DMC. That's who I am. <laughs> Old DMC. Thank you so much, Sal. We appreciate everything. Thank you. Rock, uh, let's get hey. the yeah, Thank you for coming. Let's get that intro.